Life is like chess, and stories are like books of famous chess games that serious players study so that they will be prepared if they ever find themselves in similar straits. Story proof. Page seven. <laughs> I thought I recognized that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you do, Kendall. My name is Nicola, and you're watching Singularity FM. The place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. My guest today is Dr. Kendo Haven. Kendo is the only West Point graduate to ever become a professional storyteller. Haven holds a doctorate in oceanography and spent eight years as a senior research scientist for the Department of Energy before finding his true passion for what he calls, quote, a very different kind of truth. Mm -hmm. Kendall is the author of 34 books, but the two most relevant to our conversation today are Story Proof, the science behind the startling power of story, which pioneered and reported on some of the first neuroscientific studies of the brain on story, and was later followed by Story Smart, using the science of story to persuade, inspire, influence, and teach. Finally, Kendall Haven has performed for audiences of over 5 million people for the past four decades and has been appointed as a distinguished visiting scholar at Stanford University. So, welcome to Singularity FM, Kendall. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Kendall, you have no idea how excited I am about this conversation. Uh, despite the fact that the second book that we were supposed to be I discussing know. here today has been stuck in customs for over two weeks now. So, we may have to stay focused on the first book. But well, then again, I might use it as an excuse to have you back again. Well, that would be a pleasure. And as we as as we talk, we'll slide both through both books and also beyond those books into the research over the last oh, five, six years. Absolutely. Absolutely. But let us start step by step at the beginning of the story. So let me ask you this, and perhaps maybe even before the beginning of, of the story, but mm. with your identity, should I call it, with this question. Kendall, are you a scientist who studies story or a storyteller who is using science to enhance oh, his storytelling? Um, I will answer it this way. When I was working at the department of my oceanography degrees, I was working with the Department of Energy at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, le leading a little research team looking at the environmental implications of advanced oceanic energy technologies. Every year, we would get, a, in essence, a contract for that calendar, that fiscal year, October to October, from the Department of Energy for what we were going to study. And then we would go study it. And at the end of the year, we would have to write reports that would go back to them. And every year, we had to build into our budget time and money for someone 
not necessarily me, but someone from the group, to go back to Washington, D.C., march up and down the halls of the Department of Energy and beg anyone to read our report. <laughs> and mostly, no one ever did. We would have to write a summary, max three pages at the front of it, of each report, an executive summary that was a max of one page that went in front of the summary. And then, what was the name of that? There was another one that was had to go in front of that that was max of one paragraph. The and we couldn't even get people to read that one paragraph summary. Even the people who paid us to do this, the research. In hindsight, this now makes sense to me, but at the time, what they would always say is, take the report, and they liked volume, because they, when they marched up and down the halls and had fights for, over budgets with other people, the person who could flop the most number of pages of reports under the table always won those fights. What they would always say to us is, tell me what it says. And we would think, read the report. And they would say, tell me what it says. They were looking for the story. I always was tempted in the middle of a report to break away from the report and in one page in the middle, suddenly say, he looked up at Craggy Cliff at the castle, castle walls jutting high above him in the storm clouds, blah, 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 and see if anyone <laughs> ever picked up on it. Uh, I never did it. It turns out that what we were discovering is that information itself is not very influential, not very persuasive. What matters is the way that information is provided into the brain of your target audience and how well the way that you're providing that information matches the way their brain is hardwired and programmed to process and make sense out of information and then to create meaning from it. So the answer to your question is, um, I think, in truth, we're all scientists. We're all curious about the world around us. That's science. Science is, is just a little more formal process to do what it is that we all do be curious about the world around us and try to figure out how it works. We're also all storytellers. Every human being, um, without exception, from the age of year and a half, when you start to pick up language, certainly, uses story as a primary vehicle to get what you want. So we're all telling stories all the time. The wrong question. The question is, are you consciously aware of how you form and structure and deliver your stories? And are you aware of what it feels like when you naturally are using your effective story structure and your effective story delivery, and when you're using your counterproductive, destructive, which we all have and use, unfortunately, a lot, our destructive, counterproductive storytelling styles and, um, and tendencies? So, yes, I'm a storyteller who uses science, but I'm also a human being, so that makes me a storyteller. And I think really makes us all de facto scientists. We're just not, most people aren't terribly formal in the way they approach it. How's that for a roundabout answer? 
It, it's it's interesting because I will always want to find out uh, in my interviews how people see who they are and why they do what they do. In other words, I want to find out the story behind their identity and the story of how they became who they are or they say that they are. So so now, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, which I, I, I assume is going to lead us to a, a park in Alameda and um, to a... Actually, one of those one of those moments of epiphany. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe if I stop you before we, we get, get to the park in Alameda, because I'm curious even before that. So, so mm. we want to hear your story, but we don't want to hear the story from you discovering story. I even want to go before that. Like, how ah. did you get to West Point and why? Ah. Because those <laughs> are all kind of a little bit. The, an interesting story is one which is surprising, right? That's well, that here, the element here. of surprise is one of the major elements of a good story, right? So your story, your life story is kind of surprising. West Point, okay, yeah. great. Well, then switch to oceanography yep. and then storytelling. So those are like unexpected turns everywhere. Yeah, they are. And let me, even before we get to that, uh, a lot of the research that I've been working on the last, oh, four years now has been looking at how do we, how do you control the emotion that people feel at the end of a story? Uh, there, there is a term for it, residual resolution emotion. That is to say that the emotion that you're left with, the residual emotion that you're left with after, as a story ends, it turns out that is a prime, prime predictor of how impactful and effective that story will be on changing attitudes, beliefs, values, knowledge that is say exerting influence of that emotion surprise and satisfaction are the two biggest factors surprise is the difference between the actual story and what the audience expected Expe expectations are something you can control the end of the story is something you can control. So surprise is something that a communicator has at their beck and call to manipulate and design and, and, and then deliver. Satisfaction is a comparison of the actual resolution to what the target audience would most desire. That desire is not particularly uh, variable. You, you, the communicator, don't have control over it. But you do have control over, of course, whether your resolution satisfies or doesn't satisfy. And uh, often, if you want to exert influence, one that doesn't satisfy is far more powerful and effective than one that does. But those two factors are prime targets for the design of story as we go forward. So uh, back to your question, why did I go to West Point? I was named after my grandfather. I'm Kendall was a general. Haven. He was a general. So I was told he went to Georgia Tech uh, and always wished he'd gone to West Point instead. I was told from the day I was born that I was going to go to West Point. And like an, a fool, it never occurred to me to question it. Wow. Uh, all through it never all through high school. It, it, it never, I never questioned that I would go to West Point, never made any other plans, never considered any other colleges. Um, 
And so in hindsight, it's a good thing I got admitted uh, and, and was selected to go to West Point because I didn't have a fallback plan. So went to West Point, and at the time that I went, I hadn't really seriously realized that automatically you go to West Point, you wind up in the Army. And I knew we wore, we, I knew we wore uniforms at West Point, and that was okay because I hated to decide what to wear when I got up in the morning. Uh, but the day you, you go to West Point, you first, before you become, before you're admitted into West Point formally, you join the army. So you are in the army while you're at West Point and afterwards. Um, and it turned out that very quickly I realized that was not the career that I was looking for. It wasn't where my heart felt, um, it was nourished and and sense of, and and got any sense of fulfillment. So, did my five years in. That was my obligation, and then got out. Uh, and it, at that point, either had to get a job or go to grad school. So, of course, got duh, going to grad school. Uh, just and, just out of curiosity, what was your specialty? And I'm not familiar if you have any uh, particular field of expertise or specialty. When I, when I went to West Point. I was the very first class that had an elective. Hmm. We had one slot in each semester of our senior year where we had an elective. There were, as I recall, six courses that we could pick from for those two. So the answer to your question is no. By act of Congress, at, when I went, we were all engineers. We walked out with a degree in general engineering. Wow. Which I think is a very solid background. It, 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 it's an approach to problem solving that works for better than most approaches um, in most situations. So now it's totally different. Now there are majors and, and, and whole programs, which is I wish we had had when I was there, but we didn't. So general engineering um, and growing up in Southern California, you know, I, I would on the weekends, what do you do? You run down to the beach, you go body surfing. And it occurred to me that if I got a degree in oceanography, one, I'd have to live somewhere near the ocean, which was good. And second, you know, maybe I could get a, a government job as a paid government surfer go out <laughs> and, and check the check the wave level and, you know, and the, the wave structure every day by doing a little morning surfing. And call it research. <laughs> and, call, and call it, yeah, call it research, call it what you do. So I got my degree in oceanography. Um, but it was actually more seriously, while I was in the army, there was, I, there was a book that I read, uh, it's called the year of the whale. Uh, mm. it, it's looking at the, the first year of life in a sperm whale out in the Pacific ocean done as, um, call it a story form. So you're you're looking at it through the eyes of this sperm whale. Not a particularly great book, but a decent book. And somehow that book just resonated with me. That story captured me and more than anything else drove me to saying, I'm going to get my degree in oceanography. Certainly had nothing to do with biological oceanography. I, my degree was in coastal zone management, 
physical biology, uh, physical oceanography, and then a little bit of chemical oceanography thrown in with it. So I did coastal zone management mm -hmm. work. That is to say, the interaction of human beings and the ocean right along that little strip that we call the coastal zone. Um, and was quite happy to do that, that kind of work, because I could, and I had a good team that I worked with, uh, and working at one of the national labs was certainly pleasurable. Um, but again, it there was no passion there. Uh, and I didn't at the time even really register that that's what I was lacking and looking for. But there was there wasn't passion in it. It was just a job. You still haven't uh, discovered your calling. Not at that time. So went through you know, went through the army, and that wasn't it. Went through oceanography, and that was pleasant, but it wasn't it. Uh, and it was so. I'm now in my you know, mid thirties. And that's when we get to that bit of the park. Uh, I was at the lab working and met a woman who is now and still my wife and began to woo like you do. <laughs> uh, she had a sister who was a quintessential California hippie girl who had a son. So, you know, being a California hippie girl, she had never occurred to her to get married to the guy that got her pregnant. Um, she wanted to, but she just took the, the, the kid. And so in order to give the sister a break, when I had some time off and I could take some time off in the afternoon, I'd grab the kid and take him to the park to play because I was trying to build up woo points with this woman I was, I was wooing. When I got the kid, he was four. Uh, and after a while, and before this is over, turned five. And we go to the park and play. But at some point, in order to give him a break, I'd want to keep him quiet for a little way, get him to sit down and, and rest. Uh, he was a runner. He would get up and run and just run until he collapsed. And <laughs> uh, and then would turn in and then suddenly everything would be wrong and he'd turn into a screaming banshee and his socks would be wrong and everything would be wrong and, and he'd be wailing and he'd be miserable to be with and I wouldn't want to be with him. So in order to, to prevent that, I'd want to get him to sit quietly for a few minutes and found the only way I could do it is to say, let's flop into the sandbox there at the park and I'll, I'll tell you a story. And he would flop into the sandbox and sit for a story. And as soon as we started a story, now I'm just making these up as I go along. And my soul, my motive was just to keep this one, four or five year old kid quiet for five minutes, six minutes, as long as I decided he needed to sit. As soon as we start a story, other kids would just materialize. This is back in the 80s. So the assumption was if you were in a park talking, you were talking to the people in the park, not on your cell phone to people scattered out around the world. So people in and around your vicinity were more interested in listening to the conversation because they thought it maybe applied to them a little more than it would now. Uh, so the kids would just zoom in. And then pretty soon, whoever brought them to the park, adults would come over to see why their child was hunkered down in the sandbox with a strange man who wasn't at work in the middle of the day when I should have been. And they would come over and listen and say, oh, he's not doing anything untoward. I don't have to call the police. He's just telling a story. 
And almost always those adults would stay and listen. Now they came into the middle of the story. So even if it was going somewhere, they wouldn't know where it was going because they missed the beginning. And there was no guarantee the story was going anywhere because I was just making it up. But they would stay. And I started over time as we had a regular habit of going to the park and going through this routine. I started to watch the adults who would gather. And I'd watch adults walking by Many of them, you know, business suits, carrying briefcases, doing businessy sorts of things, looking very important. And as they get within earshot and start to walk by, you could see them slow down and start to lean in and, and, and listen. Almost like I was, little physics analogy, I was a gravity well, right? And so I'm, just, and they were starting to be drawn in by the, the gravitational force of, of the story. Uh, and there was a day when it hit me that those adults in that park listening to stories that I was just making up as I went along with no thought of making the story necessarily make sense, they listened more intently and more deeply than any of the people who were reading our reports listened to those reports even though the reports had real value and significance, there was something about the process of story and storytelling that made people listen differently than did researched, quantitative... Um, Hard science. Pre presumably very valuable reports. Yeah. And so the question was, what in the world was this? Why would people listen to a story differently, more deeply than they'd listen to something else? What was it about story and the process of telling a story that did that? And that's when I first fell in awe of and then in uh, love with this notion of story and storytelling and quit my job to become a full-time storyteller. Wow, that, that that's an amazing story from West Point, Joshionography and then storytelling it's like right. full of surprises but that's what life yeah. is right at, at least good life anyway that yeah. that and makes so that makes for good stories <laughs> to, to bring it full circle as soon as i then became a, declared myself to be a storyteller and and wondered if i was inventing something new that the world had never seen uh then very quickly of course you know how, how much th there was no course on literature uh, and and on story writing at West Point, right? The only um, the only art courses we got at West Point were the art of Napoleonic tactics. So, you know, as far as I was concerned, I was inventing something brand new. And then, of course, ran into a, a whole society of storytellers, people who had been raised in storytelling communities and 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 there's a whole community of people who did it professionally so i joined the national storytelling association and turned out i was the first person in this country in the u.s to join the, the storytelling community with a background an advanced background in science so instantly i became the science guy to do the research on why do we listen to stories what is it that makes us remember stories and information better if that information comes in the form of story? And by the way, having done a lot of the research after 
that first contention was made back in the 80s. It's true. Um, we can now we can now demonstrate it very conclusively. You do remember information better if it comes to you housed in the form and structure of a story than if the information comes to you in any other way. Yeah, I've read reports so, that it, you tend to remember information associated with story 22 or 23 times better. Yeah, that... I, 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 that's cute. Um, that, <laughs> but it's, that research is woefully inadequate to come to that conclusion. Take it, take the number with a very large grain of salt. The concept is correct. Concept is is very viable, um, but that particular number and the study that they did were way too small and too weakly controlled in order to really have have faith in that particular number. So, what's if, the if magnitude it, then? If if twenty times is incorrect, what's the magnitude you would say? Uh, no one's ever uh, no one's ever really done that research. Uh, I, I, I would rather say that's, that there is a very significant advantage mm -hmm. to putting information in story terms. Um, you see, you're a good, are, cautious, there are, there are no, precise there are so many variables. Like a, yeah. like a good engineer. You don't want to fudge the numbers. You don't want to accept anything that's not double and triple checked. Well, we don't want to fudge the numbers because there's real truth there yeah. in the statement, in the core concept. And as soon as you try to fudge the numbers, then people can attack the numbers and thereby discredit the whole concept. The, the, the concept is valid. The concept is rock solid. Um, and if it's five times more, if it's three times more, my goodness gracious, to say that you're three times more likely to remember something if it comes to you in the form of a story, that would be phenomenal. Uh, if you were to say you're 30% more likely to do something if it comes to you in the form of a, uh, to, to remember something and have it recall readily into your conscious mind so that you act on it, so that it influences your behavior. If you're 30% more likely to do it if it came to you in the form of a story, that would be a tremendous advantage. That would, that would be earth shaking. So the the twenty two times thing, I I, um, I don't even think the people who did that study were serious with that number, but the concept is rock solid and is worth remembering. Well, I appreciate the correction, and which is the reason why we we have you here today, because you have a very solid scientific and engineering background, and you're very precise and specific. I am not a scientist as a background, I'm more of a philosopher, and in this specific uh -huh. occasion, as it would become pretty apparent, and my audience already knows that, uh, for good or for bad, I already have an agenda. And now, uh, generally good. also, I tend to accept the uh, most studies at face value, because again, I'm not a scientist, but you are, so you can tell me which, one are, which ones are the more reliable studies and which ones are not. And in a, just in a minute, I'm going to ask you to share with us your studies that you conducted. But just before that, the last question is about that, what, what you called very different kind of truth that you discovered. Mm. Can you give it to us? What is it, Kendall? What is that, quote, yeah. very different kind of truth? I, 
I'm often, um, when asked that question, I often picture this moment, this, this scene, picture a courtroom and a witness is on the stand and being grilled by an attorney. And the attorney says, were you or were you not in that, uh, you know, in that bedroom at three o'clock in the afternoon on the 24th? And the person says, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but, well I was, but, 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 but you have to understand that's not, you know, that, that, that's, that's not what it means. That they're looking at two different kinds of truth. One is a physical, factual truth. And the other is looking at the significance and the implications of that fact. So one kind of quote-unquote truth is really physical fact. The other kind of uh, a deeper kind of truth is looking at the significance and the meaning to human beings of physical physical fact, physical event. Uh, and so that those two often are, are for whatever agenda people have, are often separated. And, and, and people, like in a courtroom, want to look at just the physical facts of things. And, but juries, for example, in that same courtroom will make all their decisions on the human deeper truth. They'll interpret what does it mean? What is the significance of it? Um, they'll look at, at motives. Why did something happen? Not what happened, but why did it happen? And it is that kind of truth that stories get at. Stories tend to use physical fact, that kind of truth, as vehicles to communicate the, that, that deeper kind of truth that, it, that gets at motive, that gets at um, meaning. Whereas hard science tends to say, well, we'll deal with the physical facts and leave the interpretation of them up to someone else. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of Stoic philosophy. And Epictetus says, it is not the events mm -hmm. in our life, but the stories that we attach to those events yep. that make them good or evil. Exactly. I, I, I would completely agree with that. And I would say that now when we look at the science of um, what happens inside the human brain when either experiential informa information comes in from through sensory organ, that could be experience, that could be, you know, something you do something, read something, hear something, see something. Uh, so information is getting into the brain through some sensory organ. Uh, and then two things happen. One, you have to make sense out of it. Yeah. It has to physically make sense. Uh, and that, by the way, is why magic works is because they're manipulating that process of sense making so that in order to make it make sense to you, you assume something happened that, that physically shouldn't have happened, hence magic. Uh, and then having made it make sense, the mind has to say, what does this mean to me? Has to create meaning. And that uh, individual make sense version 
of the original source material, the experience or the, the, the material that came into a sensory organ, that original, that self-made, make-sense version is the one that we use to create meaning. And then that make-sense meaning version is what gets stored in the brain in long, short-term and then long-term memory. It's not the, the, the actual events. It's not the actual source material. If you, uh, you know, you hear, you see something, you read a story, you hear a story, it's not the source material that gets into your brain. It's your own self-made version of it that makes sense to you that then creates meaning for you. That's the version that gets stored in your brain. So that communication, effective communication, is all about trying to control that internal process that each person goes through of making this make sense version of information uh, and then controlling how the individual then creates meaning from it because it's the meaning that drives change in attitude, belief, values. It's the meaning that drives behavior. Uh, it, so that impact has to do with the meaning. Not the event well, or the information itself. Not, not the original event or, or information. Exactly. Well, so I think it's time for us to start digging into the science. Here's your book. It is called Story Proof, the science behind the startling power of story. Mm. It's fantastic. I have so many places where I've used my marker and have taken notes in the margins. So let's start first with the science behind it, because after all, we we have to talk about that as, as the foundation of everything that's in the book. Um, I think the, the question here is, can you perhaps describe some of the neuroscientific and cognitive tests that you c conducted yourself to study mm -hmm. the brain on story here? So that we uh, and maybe even some of the ones that you referred to that that matter mostly, perhaps because I think you quote something like what is it, eleven hundred studies in in sixteen fields of science? Uh, I think it's about fourteen hundred. There may be some that didn't make it into the book, but yeah. The, so first, uh, it was at an I was doing a workshop in uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. It's in it's in Maryland one of the, the big NASA centers, and working with, uh, with their science writers and was promoting to them a, a, a real conscious and cognitive use of story and story, the elements of story structure. And as I finished, um, a man approached, a lot of people approached being a, a science center, you know, it's usually pretty casual dress. This person was in a three-piece suit, which meant that he was top management. It turns out he was from headquarters of NASA headquarters, which was inside the Beltway. Goddard is outside the Beltway, so they get to be pretty casual and uh, informal. And he said to me, as I, he said, so you say that uh, story is a better format for us to use in our reporting. And I said, yep, that's that's the conclusion. He said, prove it. Wow. And it occurred to me that uh, it, it was intuitively obvious to me, but could I prove it? So I said, yeah, no problem. Yeah, you want to prove? I'll, I'll, I'll prove it. 
having no idea whether I really would or not. And I suspected at the time that what I would do is gather up anecdotal information, go to teachers, go to ministers, go to all of the people who I knew used stories and, and spend a fair amount of time going. And, and if I could get a couple of thousand of those people to all testify, in effect, for the power of story, that given enough anecdotal information, it becomes admissible evidence. I thought that's what I do. But first, I wanted to look at what was in the literature. So I spent, this is like doing another dissertation, spent a year or or year and a half trying to go through the literature. And that's, the product of that is the book Story Proof. Looking at 16 different fields of science from, uh, you know, the, the, the obvious ones, literature-based ones, to the, all the neural sciences, to um, behavioral sciences, to, to um, history, to everything that I could find. And the conclusion of that work was that all of those fields, even though none of them were looking at story specifically, all came to the same general conclusion. They didn't use the same terms. It, it was that story dominates the way that human beings make sense of the world. The, um, so that then launched, I was able to take that and launch doing, actually getting funding, which is the, the big challenge in doing any science research is actually getting someone other than yourself to pay for it. Uh, to, to do some real experiments. So what experiments do you do? What I wanted to do was go into a, a lab, EEG, fMRI labs, where I could wire up audiences and watch their brains when I, they would, I would deliver to them very carefully controlled information, controlled in this way. So I would take those elements of story the specific elements of story that, that we were pretty sure by by 2010, this is when this this research started, were the ones that were the dominant controlling elements to uh, uh, that define the structure of story. Isolate those and then be able to see in the responses that we got on the uh, say EEG charts, um, which ones of those really did control the way that people responded to story. Well, of, of course, the problem is then that's not at all the way that neural sciences have set uh, have, have started out. They didn't want. To, they don't look at story. They want. They're looking at how the brain functions. So, for example, we had to spend six or seven months looking at how do you how do you identify on an EEG graph and all those little squiggly lines that come off of it when you have twenty four channels of different um, different probes that are electrodes glued and attached to the to the to the head those little electrodes how do you how do you interpret those to say he's engaged hmm. he is emotionally involved um, he is he is moved he is empathetic he believes in the this 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 particular he is believing at this point so we had to find neural signatures that could relate back to what was going on in the story. Uh, and then we had to find language to use so that I could say, 
I want to look at the effect of motive, character motive on believability of character and identity, the way they identify with character. So we're suddenly using those signatures plus taking swabs of uh, mouth swabs, saliva swabs, and to, so we can get at dopamine releases and you know other chemical releases Hormones. that don't show up on an EEG scan, yeah. but that we can relate to moments like trust uh, and empathy. Um, so it's we then had to say, how do we deliver the story? Well, of course, being a live storyteller, I said, well, I'll tell the stories to each audience. Of course, the trouble is you never quite tell the story exactly the same way twice. So we, we had to abandon that and go to video recording the stories, which meant that we had to have a series of experiments then to compare the way that an audience responds to a video of a story to the way they respond to the live telling of the story. So we're trying, we could eliminate the, uh, the effect of the media, the change in medium mm -hmm. right, on the audience. So we then, uh, so this is, this then became a, a, about a three and a half year um, effort to then be able to get to a point where we could start to run audiences through stories Get, and 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 given a story, I'd maybe create eighty different versions of the story. Wow! Where we would, where I take each of the the major variables: character, character descriptions, goals of the character, motives of the characters, reactions of the characters, um, and 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 have slightly different, and so create different versions of each of those parts that we could then piece back together to form different strings of stories. <laughs> change audiences, change one element. So they'd get exactly the same story except for one little part. Maybe in a 10 minute story, we're changing a couple of sentences in the, in, in the middle and then watching the effect of those sentences play out on the, the EEG printouts and, the, and the, those neural signatures that we could identify for the rest of the story. And then we do post story interviews to get their reactions to the characters. How do you how do you feel about the character? How do you trust the characters? Would you like this character? Uh, how believable is the character? How uh, in, how interested are you in the, you know, the, the, those kind of things? To to work up the, their response to the story. How influential? How impactful do you think the story was? How moving was the story? And then we wait three months and bring those audiences back. Wire them back up and have them tell us the story they heard. Wow. Presumably they haven't heard it in three months. And the question is, after three months, one, do they, do they reasonably accurately record, repeat the story? Do they, did it get into them deeply enough so they could repeat it? it it's still there What's in their, their, in, in their relative, in their short-term memory, in their, or in their active memory. And second, when we look at the EEG signatures, do they re-experience the same or similar emotional um, roller coasters, emotional, uh, emotional trends that they experienced when they first heard the story? And if they could recall it, so if, if they've retained the story, 
And if they still experience that emotional surge that goes with the story after three months, then we can say that that story is a, a truly impactful, influential story. And then we can look at patterns for what are the elements in the story that make a story more impactful. We start to build up images of what the human brain thinks, what, how the human brain is impacted, and then relate the function of the human brain back to the elements of the story. And what, what made this uh, so, so impactful, so, so valuable, is that stories of studies have been, uh, stories of uh, I'm sorry studies of stories have been going on for thousands of years right back to Aristotle back to the Greeks uh, but always it has been the the format of those studies has been to look at the stories and say here's a story I know it had an effect on an audience so let me look at this story what they can't look at that way is what about that story had an impact on an audience. And yet, that's what you need to know. Not, did this story have an impact on an audience, but what about the story? What particular elements of the story? What is it that actually had that impact? It's like looking at a, at a, at a, a tapestry and saying, wow, it's a great tapestry. But it's a whole different level of understanding to be able to tear that tapestry apart thread by thread and decide exactly what's the, the contribution of each of those threads to that overall impact. Yeah, it's like when you have a car, which in the beginning people would call a horseless carriage, right? You are not sure. just showing the horseless carriage, you're breaking it apart and showing how it works, why it works, which what is the engine, which are the main parts, how does it convert you know, chemical energy into kinetic energy and how the whole process works. Um, so, so that, that's fantastic. And we're going to jump into the major findings in a second, perhaps, but before that, let me just ask you, uh, you, you mentioned that you run those studies for about three and a half years, four years. So I just want to get a sense of sort of the duration and the scale, because if you're running 80 versions of a story, how many people did you have to run through those studies and for, for what period of time? Um, over time. In the EEG fMRI labs, now as soon as you walk into a lab, then the the, the meter starts to run, and and you, you you're running up huge budgets. So you try to be very very efficient when you're actually in the lab. Uh, I would say we ran through. Um, we're in the range of several thousand people, actually through the through that that whole process to the extent that I could I would do it do adjunct research off the lab uh, and as soon as we get in we get theory we would get findings would get patterns in from the lab work then I'd take it out and and work with live audiences to isolate and look at specific patterns um, for example if I you know take a take a quick little story um, uh, a boastful peacock, this is a playoff of one of Aesop's fables, a, a boastful peacock scoffed at, the, uh, at a, a crane's, the dullness of the plumage of a crane. 
that's the first sentence. If I, and this is, I've done this study with probably now about 8,000 people and different, lots of different stories, where I'd say, give them that first sentence and say, okay, tell me, what's the story about? Who's the story about? What's going to happen at the end of the story? And see if, even though often much of that information is in the, the first sentence. It's about the peacock who's going to learn their lesson. <laughs> now, why did you, and if I asked you why you said that and made you track it back to a word, what word would you say is the word that made you understand what that story is about? Boastful. Yep. And so what we're looking at is you interpreting the motives, the drivers, the attitudes, beliefs, values of a character and saying they are antithetical to mine. So that character, therefore, has to be, um, needs to learn a lesson, needs to change in order to be more like I think the character should be like. You also thought it was about the peacock because it was the first character mentioned. So there are these kinds of patterns that we can pick up that give then very articulate, specific, and powerful cues to someone who wants to communicate more effectively, knowing how the brain of their audience is going to make sense of the information that they get. So a lot of that I could do offline. And I mean, offline being not in an EEG lab where I'm running up a huge budget. Uh, and would so I would try to maximize the number of times that I could take in, take the research and take it out of the lab and, and work with individual audience members and make sure that we were have a, had enough people go through the research so that the, um, the results that we had and the patterns that we picked up from the research were solid enough and statistically relevant enough so that the numbers we could come up with, we, we could say we're with, with much more confidence than that 22 times more effective if it's in a story kind of mm -hmm, a number. Mm -hmm. So if you were to give us the, so imagine we're in Washington and you are to give us the major findings in a paragraph or so, what were mm -hmm. the major find, findings of that kind of multi-year, multi-thousands of people kind of research? Okay. Uh, summary research. Summary result is absolutely the human brain is hardwired from before birth to make sense of incoming information in very specific story terms using very specific story-based models. And that we now know what all of those elements are and how they combine to exert influence so that we can now develop algorithms. Um, and that's kind of what I've been working on the last couple of years is developing actual algorithms that can forecast for a given target audience as you develop the story or once it's developed, if we want to assess it, how exactly influential it will be. That's kind of scary a little bit, but before I... Absolute, 
Abs and, and, and on that sense, absolutely it is, which is one of the reasons that I haven't done any publishing in the, the last three or four years, is the question is, so who, who, there are lots of people and organizations I would prefer not to have this information. Yeah, because that's uh, what kind of Facebook has been trying to do to us, I think, which is to say exactly what you said, develop algorithms to influence us. And of course, they're doing it um, for their own purposes. My goal is, and, and this is actually what I'm trying to to create, is a vehicle to arm. Ultimately, I would like to arm the, every human being in the world with an understanding of how story works. Mm -hmm. So, education departments one of my prime targets, although. Uh, in the last 20 years, the education departments in the United States have been overwhelmingly non-responsive uh, as they have, have drunk the Kool-Aid of standardized testing. Yeah. Um, but if, if people understand how stories work, it's not that they will be less powerful, it's that they will understand when someone is trying to exert story-based influence over them uh, and manipulate them in a way that's, that isn't to their best interest. Uh, stories are powerful. Stories are frighteningly, terrifyingly powerful. When I teach courses in storytelling, uh, that's one of the things, that's one of the places we start, is that you are now wielding an immense amount of power, and that means that you're responsible for the for wielding it in a socially responsible, productive way. Uh, and yeah, that so stories always have been powerful, and there are people who have naturally stumbled on into ways of using story that have had incredible destructive counterproductive effects on the world. That's not going to change until a vast majority of the population of the world understand how stories work and understand when they are being manipulated and so can look at it more thoughtfully uh, and not be as easily manipulated as has happened in the past. And to a large extent, is happening right now. Are stories, because you said stories are a very powerful tool, are stories not the most powerful tool? I suppose it would, this is the science of me talking. Yeah, that's why I'm asking, because I want to no. see. I have an answer well, um, already, but I want to hear yours. Well, I I would say that having a... a um, uh, we'll say a 10,000 megaton asteroid slam into Earth, and, into Earth and destroy all life, that's pretty powerful. Um, so the question is what sorts of realm and what sorts of measures are using for power? If you're talking about influencing the human, human beings, then I would say story is the most effective most powerful vehicle for 
delivering messages into the conscious mind memory of human beings that exists. Yes. Um, if you're talking about non-human species, yeah, you may, you know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. We don't know yet. Uh, if you're talking about, you know, is a hurricane more powerful than a story? Well, um, you're using different metrics. So, well, if in a practical sense, though, you you cannot. There is no way to deliver messaging deliver information, deliver concept to a human being that matches the power of forming that into the structure of a story and, and delivering it that way. When I use the word story here, you, a, more effect, a more correct term would be effective story. So many of the quote-unquote stories that we run into um, have absolutely no effect because of the way they're structured. In fact, the research that, that I'm, I and others have been able to do, the best estimate, the best approximation that is now available is 98 plus percent of all of the quote unquote stories, story-like material that go, that impinge on you, have absolutely no effect on you at all. They go in one ear and out the other, They in one eye and out the other. You never even remember that you were exposed to them. The question is, what is it that that tiny percentage that do exert influence, what do they hold in common? And what they hold in common are is an adherence to the structural elements of effective story, these elements that come out of the research. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and use those elements so that the, they make sense in the human mind the way the communicator intended for them to make sense and that they then generate the, the meaning in the human mind that the communicator intended for them to make. Now, when you said we can't compare necessarily, but let, let me give you this, this kind of a, a story scenario. Uh, so you, you, do, you did give the asteroid example uh, which could be, you know, a dinosaur killer or a life killer, like an extinction-causing uh, asteroid. Yep. But we can accomplish the same with a story, can't we? Because we can create the context within which nuclear weapons wipe out all life on Earth. And you can't yep. have that without story. Um, In yes. fact, the very existence it, of those it... weapons was created uh, within a context of a particular story without which we yeah. may not have even had the weapons and surely we would not have used them as we did use them. Right. And so that what the story more than anything has, has done is what the, the story of atomic weapons um, certainly... Atomic energy, well, look at atomic energy, the development of atomic energy, right, uh, could uh, did spin in several different directions. Sure. Um, very, very uh, medical applications, um, 
the certainly the energy electrical energy production and and then and and then 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 the bombs the story that dominated the thinking of those people who had the ability to to sway the direction of research and development yep that determined where that where the physical uh, understanding and the science would go yep absolutely true but at the same time um, what story changes human thinking and so therefore directs changes in behavior uh, and the good news is that there's nothing inherent in this in the existence of an atomic bomb that is detrimental to human beings it's whether we how whether we use them and if so how we use them we could we could run a scenario where um a, 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 you know a, a nuclear detonation is what and this has been done in movies couple of them is what prevents that asteroid from sure. attacking the earth right we uh so a nuclear explosion isn't necessarily automatically a bad thing um it's you're you're right though this the, stories control we are really homo narratives we're story animals we are controlled by story our thinking is controlled by story um, at such a fundamental level that we're not even aware of you it. said that that's true uh, even it, before birth even yeah tell me more yeah. uh, there's been some research I haven't I, I I haven't done any of this research but there is some that's been done on babies as young as three months old where they'll start to to recognize uh, and you're looking at eye movement you're looking at how long they they stay focused on on something I Uh, given some visual information in front of them that the, they they will start to to respond consistently to those core elements of story um, character uh, action of character look for look for goal have some sense of when something should come to resolution character goal action that you know those the, the simple story based elements that so they definitely put pre-date the acquisition of language but still those uh, are after birth after after birth but um, yeah it, 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 but certainly predate the acquisition of language so that they are there in the in the in the very earliest stages of the developing developing mind um, and we can see the the when we go into EEG if EEG labs we can now physically uh, you know watching where what little micro centers light up uh, and when we control the information that's coming in to isolate major story elements character character based information goal motive um, struggles risk danger the, you know, the, those those things and What we can do is we can actually see the specific little micro centers that register with those particular story elements so we can start to map this neural the, the, that network that neural story net 
and 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 locate it. So here, what we can say is that when you when information comes in through a sensory organ, it doesn't go straight to your conscious mind. We think it does, but it doesn't. There's an amazing amount of pre-processing that happens at a subconscious level to information that comes in through sensory organs. A good example is reading. You read something, words don't go down the optic nerve into your mind. What goes down the optic nerve is more like a uh, the, the, the dot pattern you know, from the old style TVs that had that cathode ray gun. That, that gun literally shot information to each individual pixel on, on a Photons. TV screen, which said, yeah. light up or don't light up. And said it, first with black and white TVs, it was an on-off thing. Then with color, it said gave that information to the different to three different color layers, right? And then it moved to the next pixel and sent. And then if it, because it did it very fast across thousands and thousands of individual pixels on the screen, for us, on the other side of the screen, it looked like a picture. It looked like a moving picture. It's that same sort of information that goes down the optic nerve. And we can see these little processors in the lower back part of the brain, in the subconscious part of the mind, that piece those dots back together and say, oh, this is a line. And then sends that information to a, 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 another little micro center that says, I recognize that line. We call it a letter or a number or a symbol, right? Uh, and sends that back to a processor that says, well, there are a whole bunch of those all pieced together before there's a blank space. Do we do we recognize that? That goes to, to, to a dictionary word, to a dictionary processor that says, it's a word. I know that word. So all of, you're not aware, consciously aware of any of this processing. At the same time that that processing is going on, we can see these little story-based microcenters light up, which means that at the same time that we are doing that initial subconscious processing, processing, we are also converting this information into story terms, that is to say, making sense of it in story terms. That happens before the information gets to the conscious mind, not after. This neural story net, this, this story-based processing happens between the outside world and your conscious mind. Information doesn't get into the conscious mind without going through that story-based processing. That's why our brains are so story dominated is because that we have set it up, our, our brain set it up for whatever purpose, however many tens of or hundreds of thousands of years ago, so that information would come in, get processed into story form, and then go to the conscious mind. And then we try to make sense of it and, and create meaning. Wow, that's, that's so powerful. And it's so deep down on the processing level it's not even at the conscious but way down in the subconscious level and the, the, the lower uh, uh, brain here is like one of the yep. the oldest structures of the brain the oldest right it so, is so Absolutely. was that then for you the biggest surprise of that of that of those studies or was there anything else that you would call the biggest hmm. surprise for me, the biggest surprise was one, and actually it's my wife first asked me this question. And I remember the day I was standing behind a little couch next to the, our front door. And she said, so what happens? This is when I was, I was researching story, nearing the end of researching story proof. 
And she said, so what happens if you find out that you're wrong? <laughs> and by that time, I had been doing workshops for a good decade and, and telling people, you know, here's the way stories work. Here's the, here's the structural elements of story. Do it this way. Do it this way. Uh, and at that, until that moment, I hadn't really stopped to think, okay, what do I do if I now find out as I'm piecing all this you know, 14, 1500 studies together. If I, if I piece all those together, coming from all these different fields of science, if I, if it comes, if it leads me to a different conclusion, what do I say to all those people? I, I've been pre preaching the, the power of story structure to for a decade. Uh, and actually the biggest surprise I would say was not only th that the research agreed with me, but it was how incredibly tightly the terms and the um, the individual conclusions of individual studies meshed up with what we we're saying is, is the are the structural major structural elements of story uh, those that we had in the 80s and and early 90s just in looking at doing getting other storytellers to do little experiments for me to test audiences and test reactions to live audiences, we had built up a fair, a, a very large body of anecdotal information to say, here's how stories work. Here, you know, here's what what an audience really responds to. Now to find that coming from the research world, we were getting exactly the same conclusions. Uh, that was probably the biggest surprise, but also an amazingly powerful thing to be able to conclude and to, and to come to them and say that, yeah, when you're working out, out in the real world with live audiences, you come to the exact same conclusion that you do when you're doing research in labs, in universities, uh, and it doesn't even matter what field it is you think you're researching, all of it can coalesces around this very specific body of, of story-based elements. Yeah, it's like a, a comedian uh, who goes into a bunch of nightclubs and, and does comedy. Uh, you know, they don't hook up people to fMRI. So in the best case, when they're sifting through, sifting through their jokes, all they have is the anecdotal evidence uh, right. based on the feedback or response from the audience that they encounter every night. And so they can right. do a joke, and if the joke you know, is dead two or three times in a row, sure. you throw away that joke, obviously. Then, uh, and if a joke keeps now, making people laugh you know, their heads off, then obviously, but but they don't actually hook people up to, see, to fMRIs. No, but if you are a, a, a new comedian coming up and you look at an established comedian and say, he does that joke and it, it always works. So I should say that joke or ones like it will always work for me. Well, that's not true oh, at all. Yeah. The question is, what about that joke? Is it the context where where the comedian puts it in his whole program? Is it the delivery, the way he did it? Is it something about the audiences that that comedian typically faces that makes that joke work? Is it some element in the joke? Great point. Um, so a new comedian would want to know, ideally, not only does that joke work, but what makes it work? so that they can decide, will that or similar jokes work for me? Or can I take that, those same elements and make them work for me? 
that's the idea of doing that's the research. That's where the science can be, be so useful, to, yeah. That's where it yeah. comes in. So, Kendall, we've been talking now for an hour, and I think it's time for us to define our terms here. So, what is story? How do you define story? Uh, actually, that's a, when I do workshops. If we have time, that's a wonderful game to play. I'll have everyone in the audience define story, and and my role will be to tear their their definition. Let's apart. do it. Let's do it. I'll give you my working definition, and you tear it apart, please. All right, sure. And and then we'll we'll go on to what I think is a is a more productive definition. Excellent. Go ahead. I'll just read two or three paragraphs of my kind of draft here on defining story. Mm. Uh, and so. We started our thought experiment with Kenneth Burke's definition of story as equipment for living. Mm -hmm. Burke offers a great start, but it is Jeff Deschambiot who really brings all the essential elements together mm -hmm. in defining story as, quote, information processing technology. And whether we realize it or not, it is among the oldest, most powerful and longest lasting technologies we have. So let us break it apart and take a closer look to see how and why Deschambiot's definition works so well. The first thing we ought to note is that story is about information. It started around the cognitive revolution 70,000 years ago when we had no writing and story was the vehicle that carried information from one person to another, one generation to another. Then we invented writing and moved from the oral to the written world, to the written word. Story got even more powerful because we could suddenly send information both across time and space. Now, the second is that story is about processing. That is, organizing the information in a way that provides new insight that we did not have before. In other words, a story can take data and make sense of it. So it turns information into knowledge because there is a point to using story, a lesson to be learned. It is for this reason that Walter Benjamin notes, the value of information does not survive the moment in which it was new. It lives only at that moment, and mm. it has to surrender to it completely and explain itself to it without losing any time. A story is different. It does not extend, expand itself. It preserves and concentrates its strength, and it is capable of releasing it even after a long time. And finally, the third part of the definition is that uh, story is technology because story is a conceptual tool created by Homo sapiens. For example, Kevin Kelly defines technology as anything useful invented by a mind. For Angus Fletcher, technology is any human-made thing that helps us to solve a problem. As any good tool, we can apply story to many a problem to help us understand, make sense of, and deal with it. No story no way to organize information, no way to process it, no way to make sense of, remember, or understand. Because story is ultimately about understanding and solving problems. So what do you think? My definition of story as okay. information processing technology. Um, I would say those are very apt characteristics of story but do they a, 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 a definition defines boundaries that's what a definition does defines boundaries uh, 
And so boundaries are about saying what isn't as much as they are about saying what is a story. Uh, and most people define story in one of two ways, either by saying characteristics of story, this is, this is what stories do, uh, or by talking about their, their, their experience of story, the effect of story. What you're doing there is more the characteristics of story. And when we look at then, the question is, are there things that would meet that definition that we would consider to not be story? Yes. So information, processing, technology. Uh, is a telephone, and I'm thinking now of an old dial phone, uh, is that a story? It does take information and process it, and it is certainly technology. Um, I would say that characterizes story, but does it uniquely characterize story? Yes. It's a fair criticism which says that basically my definition is not specific enough because there may be many, yeah. many, many other uh, candidates that fit within that definition but are clearly not what we would call story. Not what we mean. So the, the, and here's where we run into the problem is definitions, like everything else, if they're, if, if they're to be effective, serve a purpose. Uh, they, 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 they tell us something. And so the question is, what is it we're looking for out of a definition of story? Um, and so that, that, that then opens up to there being different kinds of definitions. For me, what I want to know about story is a... a I want a definition that explains why and how story exerts the, in, the, the power that it exerts, the influence that it mm -hmm. exerts. Um, and so my def what I'm looking for in a definition is a way to identify the characteristics of story that uh, are responsible for that incredible power. Uh, and so if I was in different defined story, it would be uh, a narrative presentation of character-based information presented so that it provides the essential bits of information required by the human brain in order to make sense of the information and create meaning from it as intended by the communicator. Now, that really is a definition of, a, of an effective story. And so I'm ignoring those things that most generally get classed as stories, but that aren't at all effective. I would say it's possible to have a story where there is no intended um, real information being transmitted. It's just a silly, fun story. However, 
they those things work because the human the human being is a meaning seeking animal and our brains as soon as they make sense out of something will always then say what does this mean to me what 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 meaning can i glean from this so whether or not there's any meaning intended by the communicator it's going to be inferred and created by the receiver mm-hmm. story then is the vehicle Story really isn't the message. Story is the vehicle that transmits that transmits um, information. So it's not the information itself. It's the it's the way that you organize the information as a vehicle designed to effectively transmit that information into the conscious mind and memory of a human. Yeah, being. in military terms, that's what stories as do. As you say, sometimes. Story is the missile and message is the warhead. Yep. Let me read your yep. definition from page 79 verbatim yep. uh, and, and give you another one which comes close to it because I have actually collected uh, probably seven or eight uh, definitions of story in the course of the last yep. year or so during my research. And, and what you'll find is that there are different stories, there are different, very valid information, diff- definitions of story collected and created for a specific purpose. It, it, it turns out that even definitions in order to be have meaning need to have sure, purpose. Sure, of course. Which is which is a, which is a story based, by the way, a story based concept. Right, and so within the story of me doing my research and writing my next book, these uh, your definition and the definition of Lisa Cron are my favorite stories uh, 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 definitions. Yeah. So your your own definition from page seventy nine here in Story Proof, mm-hmm. and you know I have to say you go more than halfway through your book before you actually finally give us the definition, which was an interesting approach. Yeah. But you say there on page 79, quote, a detailed character-based narration of a character's struggles to overcome obstacles and reach an important goal. That's your definition of story. And and that's what I, that's what I, that, that, that sort of, what I'm trying to do there is, um, when I just was talking to you, I was being more more general. That characterizes that uses those core elements of story, the essential elements of story, as the defining terms, characters. Um, so, in that, you know, it's more a description of what a story is um, than a defining. So, in, 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 although I use it as a definition, it really technically is a description. That's what it is. It's a, a, a character-based narrative presentation of what that character does, their struggles, facing risk and danger to overcome problems and conflicts in order to achieve a goal that's important to them all presented in sufficient detail so that the mind of the receiver can visualize uh, and make sense of it as intended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the, and 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 really then what we're looking at are y- using that as a framework as a scaffold onto which you attach the you know the 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 specific details and events of your story. Uh but that scaffold gives that story form and shape 
and and the 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 ability to then make sense to the receiver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and a very similar definition given by Lisa Cron in her fantastic book, Lisa, Wired yeah. for Story, is, quote, a story yep. is about how what happens, that is the plot, affects someone, that is the protagonist, in pursuit of deceptively difficult goal, that is the story problem, and about how that person changes internally in order to solve the problem. Yep. And the only thing I'd never liked about, and I've told her this, uh, that internal change, I can show you a whole lot of st very effective stories in which the main character doesn't change at all. Um, hopefully, what she really is referring to, not hopefully, if, if the story works, what she's referring to for that internal change isn't in the character, it's in the receiver of the story. So that that change happens, the story then affects the, the, the receiver of the story in some way, so that what you're looking at is changes in attitudes, beliefs, values, understanding uh, within, within the receiver, because, there, again, there are very many very effective stories in which the main characters, and that's really what she's following there is in that definition is the main character, don't change at all. They're exactly the same at the end that they were at the beginning. But what changes is the way that the, the receiver of the story views that character uh, and, and views the world around in the story. So, uh, and, and I've told that, to, I've actually told yeah, that. Yeah, and to you Lisa. say uh, many times that, that stories are like magic tricks. They, they really happen in the mind of the audience. Uh, not in the magician hands yeah. uh, or, or on the page of the book or in the mouth of the storyteller. They happen in the minds of the audience, of the listener, of the viewer. Um, yeah. yeah, which is which is a great point. And, and, and that's that's a key point to understand. And, and, and I think a fair criticism to Lisa's uh, definition. But another definition of yours that I like uh, perhaps even more because of its three words short. It's so brief of story is that Ch characters story is characters at war characters. At now that that's war. very West point, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, my wife doesn't like that one. Um, I love it, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, well, she doesn't like it. She doesn't like war. Oh, uh, I don't. Yeah. And, and, and I'm using a very wide definition yeah. here of war. War doesn't have to be, you can be at war yeah, with yeah. yourself. You can be at at war with uh, you know, w war is what is a war? It is, it is when character when conflict, you struggle, yeah. facing risk and danger to overcome problems mm -hmm. and conflicts to achieve something, a goal. And and if you're going to be willing to go to war, that that something that goal is important to you, motive. So yeah, really, that's the essence of. Of stories is characters at war. Let me pull one of the uh, other elements here that I think is very uh, important and, and kind of uh, perhaps I'm over relying or over emphasizing that element in w my failed attempt to define it or to borrow Jeff Deschambeau's definition. And I took that from Storyproof page 13, where you say the similarity of store and story is not coincidence. 
Stories are our universal storehouse of knowledge, beliefs, values, attitudes, passions, dreams, imagination, and vision. So this is yep. the, 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 the information processing part that I was talking about. So t say more about that. And yes. am I, uh, because clearly uh, I think maybe I'm way overemphasizing that part. Yeah. No, actually you're not. Uh, it, it, um, a lot of this research came out of the the anti-smoking huh. research, uh, and and researchers would compile massive amounts of data and and anecdotal information and 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 you know case study information to show the dangers of smoking, the dangers of smoking, and show it to people who were over and over again to, to people and. You know, and and often then the people to whom they they show it would say, "Wow, yeah, that I, that's I you know I agree completely. Wow, that smoking is terrible. If, uh, you mind if I light up while we talk about it?" <laughs> and what we've what researchers found, and th this is in my research, a lot of uh, other people um, uh, have found, is that our deepest core values and beliefs are housed in story form and we tend to defend those core stories from attack and we'll, we'll, we'll not only do it vehemently, we'll do it to the death. So that what happens is we tend to interpret incoming information in order to support and reinforce our existing core beliefs. Um, and so how do you do that? Well, goodness gracious, look at the 2020 presidential election in the United States. Uh, what happens is if you don't like the conclusion that someone came to, you, in order to maintain the, your, your belief, you discount the source of the information. Or you accept without actual much analysis. You find the most favorable uh, interpretation some, of the data that fits within your story, pre-existing story. Well, actually, you start with a conclusion. You start with yeah. the interpretation and then, and then force the data to, to, to support it. Uh, so that what, yeah, from, you know, I mean, we can track the, the development of complex language back easily 150,000 years and that and again I haven't done any of this research uh, but the, the the people that have have looked at it and now I'm glad someone has have been able to show that for virtually all that time we have stored uh all of the societal information, history, beliefs, values, factual information in human memory, because there's no other place to store them, right? If it didn't get stored in human memory, it didn't get stored, yeah. period. The oldest lithographs on cave, cave walls date back to what, 35,000 years ago, the ones in France. Uh, and they're about the oldest ones that are known. Now, maybe there's, there were some older ones, but certainly, for the majority of human history with 
complex language, information has been stored in language form in the human brain. And people have been able to show that mostly that's been done in story form. That's the vehicle that we use. And it, either it is that people decided to use story and that over time the brain evolved to process information in story terms or that the brain had already been involved to process in story terms and people started to use story because that's what worked. And, and, and it's, it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, either way, we have now what we have, you know, we, we have chickens and we have scrambled <laughs> eggs and uh, and that's the reality that, that we have been dealt. Um, and it may be that complex language goes back to about 350,000 years ago based on some skull fragments that have been found in Africa, that there, there's a bulge in the back of the skull, which is where the language center is. And the, the advent of complex language in human beings coincides with the development of that bulge in the back of the skull. So the, the, the question for anthropologists and some of the researchers was, can we find skulls that predate and then just the ones, the first ones that show that, that bulge? And there's some from Africa that are about 350,000 years old that, that may show that bulge, that may say, well, complex language developed sooner than we thought it did. But either way, the, where we are is that as language developed, stories were used in order to impress information into the human brain, into into our memory circuits, uh, as a storehouse for and how human do we knowledge. know if we've had the story capacity before we developed language, or after? Yeah, and the answer is I don't know, and I don't know who's going to. I don't know if anyone is is working on that particular question right now, or even how you would. Brian Boyd shared with me. A how you would get uh, I interviewed at it. Uh, Brian, Bo Brian Boyd from the University of Auckland in New Zealand yep. uh, last podcast yep. episode and I read his, uh, uh, his book on, on the evolution of story. And uh, he uh, mm. makes an argument there, but after that he published a, 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 so, so originally in his, in his book on the evolution of story, he gives the example of these deaf mutes uh, I forget if they were in Nicaragua or in Mexico, mm. who were able to right. sort of put narratives even though they couldn't speak and never learned to speak, not even yes. like by miming or, you know, any. they didn't have any language whatsoever, and yet they, they would kind of try to verbalize or communicate a narrative of, right. of a sort. So that was some perhaps evidence that, that may be preceded. But then he wrote a paper where he tweaked his position and said that, well, I, I think it's more realistic and I think that's the most convincing part. And he goes through great extent in it that they're kind of mutually in a, in a, in a feedback loop. So we, we had like language, uh, uh, maybe a little bit of story or a little bit of story capacity and then a little bit of language and then th th those co-evolved together in a feedback loop mutually reinforcing each other kind of and that certainly makes the most sense that, that seems logical the, uh, yeah i've read uh, a lot of his stuff and um my problem with his you know the deaf mute uh, the those examples 
is that their brains are still a product of the DNA, of modern DNA. And That's what I told him too, yeah. I mean, story, story, literally, that, that, this is the conclusion that we can make now by, by looking at the physical structures that, that, arrive, that are there in the back of the, back of the brain that process in story terms. Story, the elements of story and the form of story literally are scripted into our DNA. It is who we are. That those struct because of, because of the way that those physical structures develop in the uh, back in that in, in that reptilian that early part of the brain that subconscious part of the brain, we, and so, in order to really say which came first, you, know, you you almost have to go back. You somehow have to go back before that statement was true, and find a way to do the research sort of a before and then after comparison. Uh, and I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you you do that. Um, interesting, but sort of an academic research, because the reality is that we are, story is in our DNA. It is scripted into us. It is who we are. And the more that we acknowledge it, the more that we honor it, the more that we use it and say, hooray, we're story animals. Let's let's teach ourselves let's let's immerse ourselves in an understanding of story to better understand who we are and how yeah, we function yeah let's let's talk about the implications here a little bit because that would kind of connect us to the most important element or one of the most important elements of story which is the motivation uh and and you know my personal story of discovering that and and getting motivated to learn about story after so many years uh, was the fact that, you know, and it's kind of like maybe embarrassing to, to, to say that, you know, I've had, you know, I, I'm, I'm now 46 years old and, and it, I, it first, first started dawning on me about the importance of story maybe about six or seven years ago uh, when I noticed, uh, and it was maybe even before Trump, but especially during the election of Trump, that, you know, uh, my wife's uh, family on her mother's side is from Rochester, New York. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, Rochester used to be called Kodak City for many, many, many decades. It was a very prosperous community. At once, Kodak went bankrupt. It's, it's a complete disaster. Yep. It's kind of like Detroit uh, in many ways. Um, anyway, and most of her family voted for Trump. Uh, and my mother-in-law is a big, really? big, uh, you know, even though she's lived now more her life in Canada than in America, in the United States of America. So she's gotten her education in Canada. She's married in Canada. She's had three kids in Canada. She considers herself an American first and foremost. And not only that, but, mm. you know, very kind of much Republican, proud, patriotic, you know, American and Trump supporter. Um, and my, uh, if, what I learned is after, you know, cause I love my mother-in-law. She's like one of the most generous, uh, most genuine, most, uh, you know, amazing people that I've had met in my life, but we cannot agree on any of those things, whether it's climate change, whether it's the president of the United States, whether it's, a, you know, the invasion of Iraq, 
for example, by George mm. Bush, which was an illegal and an immoral yep. war in my books, uh, just like now the invasion of Ukraine by Putin. And anyway, and what I noticed is that in conversations with her, with her family, with my friends now even, uh, with respect, my friends and classmates in Bulgaria, with respect to the war next door in Ukraine, you know, uh, yes. we cannot agree on on the basic facts of things. Uh, and it occurred to me that no matter how much information, knowledge and factual data I bring to bear, it's never making any iota of a difference. And then it occurred to me no. that it is through stories that people frame the the uh, realm within which they assess the data and then they discount some of it, which if it doesn't fit within their story, they either discount it or find a favorable interpretation of that same story that would validate or justify their pre-existing conclusion within their already pre-existing story framework. And that's when I started yep. looking, okay, well, look, we have climate change. It's it's incontroversial. It's like indisputable, factual happening. And we know we are the cause of it. We are the engine of it. And yet, you know, when it comes to, for example, what do we do about it? Then we we start cr clashing because some people say, oh, it's the greatest catastrophe that we, it's self-caused. And other people say, no, it's not about that. It's about really the uh, the economy and jobs. That's what it's about. It's not about the catastrophe. It's about the catastrophe is losing jobs and not having the economy grow. So we can have mm -hmm. the same data, but look diametrically opposed conclusions. And so that was to me the... The, the moment when the light bulb went off, and I'm embarrassed to say I was like 39 years old. Uh, Don't be. I, I'd say most people go through their lives and that light bulb never goes off. <laughs> well, I, 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 I hope not. So, so, but then the question is, uh, let us talk about the, the, the implication of story, because then there's another problem with it. And, and that's the, the fact that storytelling has a bad reputation. Uh, and, and especially, you know, before that, uh, you know, I, I've done 300 episodes uh, of my podcast uh, with some of the, quote, brightest and best experts around the world in many scientific disciplines from artificial intelligence to genetics, robotics, nanotech, synthetic biology, 3D printing, and so on. And in scientific circles, uh, storytelling has a bad reputation. Uh, you know, every scientist, and I'm sure you've had yeah. infinitely more experience with me about that, whether it's with global warming, mm -hmm. whether it's with like ocean acidification, whether it's with coral bleaching mm -hmm. or what have you. Scientists just want to talk about the data and the moment you start telling them about, well, but what about the story? How are we going to... And they're like, wait a second. Like, I am a scientist. I don't do this. This is manipulation. This is spin doctoring and so on. So the, the question yeah. is, How do we get around that kind of bad rep that, that storytelling seems to have acquired? Yeah. First, I tried, not real intensively, but for, for several years to say, where did that come from, that, that, that reputation? Um, storytelling, I, I have been in classrooms. Literally, this has happened a number of times. 
and been working with students. It's, you know, it's happened from third grade, third graders up through middle school grades, a lot. Where I'll get kids up and I'll say, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make up a story." And I've had kids say, "Can I be excused? I don't want to do this." And I'll say, "Why?" And they'll say, "Because my father tells me I'm not allowed to make up stories." <laughs> what the father is saying, is, so the, what that says is the father equates story and storytelling yeah. with lying. Uh, storytelling also gets equated with sure. fiction. Story with fiction. Well, where did where did that where did that come about? For if it's true that for a hundred and fifty thousand years plus or minus, we have used story and storytelling as vehicles for communicating essential community, societal, personal information, for, for communicating it and for archiving it, then where did this sudden flip happen? It seems to date and spread from England in the 1600s at some point. And 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 I, I'd have to do a, a lot more work, and I just haven't taken the time to, or effort to go do it to to try to pinpoint it anymore. Where that flip seemed to happen, and it happened around the time of the Reformation, when suddenly uh, religious information from the Catholic Church, dominant force at that time in Europe. That was truth, and everything else was fiction. And so, that that seems to be the the the, the linchpin that's that started this idea of story being fiction, story being lies, because it was different than the truth than than the church's version of, of wow. things. And it would, again, it would take more more research to actually pin that down. But that seems to be where the the research that I was able to do seems to be pointing. So we have this belief uh, that, that's very deep-seated. It's easy when you get a, on a one-on-one -on -one with someone to demonstrate how in, how meaningless it is and how, and, and, and how incorrect those beliefs are. Uh, and that no one really, that none of the people you're talking to really believe it at, at, at all. Anyway, um, it's not a conscious decision. It's it's down at a very subconscious societal level that we have those truths. Uh, let me do one other thing on before we get to how, what do you do about it, uh, just to show you how powerful that that sense is that we tend to interpret incoming information to support our existing beliefs. Uh, this was a study by the National Institutes of Health. Uh, and now, gosh, 12 mm -hmm. years ago, I think, uh, they were worried that more and more families were opting out of that basic three cocktail immunization you give to your kids early on, the you know, rubella and the, that one. Uh, and so wanted to do a study to see why were people opting out of it and got uh, 2,000 couples who either just had or just about to have their first child. Split them in half. Half, they just followed them. And the question was, were they going to get the, 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 the vaccinations or weren't they? No, no influence, no direct contact. 
just followed them. The other half met with each of them and gave, showed them the studies that said how safe the, the vaccinations were um, and how the only, the only study that ever concluded that, the, uh, that vaccinations either retard the natural development of the immune system or cause autism, which is a big one, came out of one study in England. And three years after he did the initial study, the author of that study rebuked his own study and said, I was faking data. That's not true. Uh, and yet still the studies lived on. So all these studies and followed them. Conclusion, the group that had been given the information wound up being 34% less likely to immunize their children than the parents who were wow. given nothing. Now, what unfortunately the National Institutes of Health didn't do, but a couple of other researchers did a little bit of, was to go back to all of those people and say, what happened? And those that were interviewed afterwards, uh, who had gotten the information, tended to come, tended to receive a couple of retain a couple of bits of information, a couple of conclusions from that research, from that exposure. One was, gee, if there's been research, there must be some danger. If there hadn't been a danger to the immunizations, they wouldn't have done the research in the first place. The other one was, most of the people said, yes, I was so glad that the researchers showed me that information that explained how dangerous the immunizations <laughs> are. And when the researchers then said, no, 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 that's not what they showed you, and brought out the exact same studies, brought out all the exact same information and laid it on the table, those parents tended to say, this must be different studies. The ones I was shown before concluded that the, that the vaccinations were dangerous. What ha so what that says is that the most powerful technique that comes out of story research, I mean, other than understanding the structure of stories, is the sense of story reframing. You cannot, you, you will not change someone's stories by saying your story is wrong and here's the correct story. And every human being you go to, even if it's on a topic that they claim to know nothing about is going to have a story in their mind, a preconceived notion. And in order to change that story, information alone will not change someone's story. Why? Because information alone, uh, a story, we are engaged in stories and the way we're able to define engagement is emotionally laden attention. There is an emotional component that is an essential part of being engaged. Information alone will not engage because it doesn't emotionally involve us. Uh, attention being prolonged mental focus over time. That, that's attention. Uh, so what we have to do is understand the story that our target audience has in their minds and reframe that story, not deny it, not attack it, but show how to shift 
certain elements in the story to come to a different conclusion. Look at the story a slightly different way and come to a conclusion. And there are lots of examples of story reframing having amazingly powerful effect. So help me out here. Uh, We have the story of let's make America great again. You know, great story. I, I, for one, I I got nothing against it. I mean, sure, let's make them. Oh, I do. I do. (laughs) Well, you, okay, you can, you can tell me that, but, but generally, like, in principle, I don't mind America or Russia or any country, China being great again. Uh, I do mind many of the ideas or proposed solutions associated with that kind of general umbrella. So how do we go and reframe the associations between the two so that we are still working within the umbrella of let's make America great again? Because I have nothing against, you know, America being prosperous and, and, you know, a shining light of democracy for the world, but show that, that the, the, the actions proposed, if, if there were any, and the person supposedly proposing those actions are, for lack of better term, false prophets. How okay. do we reframe um, that? Because I failed take, miserably. That I, I, I and, understood and, the story. Yeah. I understood their story, and yet I failed to break well, the, through. The, you see, this, uh, again, stories happen in the mind of the receiver. And so the target audience for that story were Americans who were disgruntled by the direction of the country. Uh, Rochester and, is a perfect example of that. They used to have great lives. And, and, and so what, what the, the Make America Great Again, what the story is, is America is not great now. And the reason it is not great is because my opponent and that party uh, let it crumble. So that the story isn't about America being great. It's about America falling into ungreatness, America no longer being great. That's what the story is. And we've now identified the, the culprit. And the culprit, the reason we're not, it's not great is uh, my opponent let it slip, let America slide, and let America falter. And so to reframe, Reframing a story, um, what's a good example that, that's easy to understand, that's easy to, easy to see? Um, change stories. You know, com- companies are always worried about the, the change stories and change stories. And change stories are, we, we think of, oh, some, something's going to change. It's going to get bad. They're, you know, the change stories aren't about change. Change stories are about preservation. Why do we change anything? Because we, there's something else that's more precious that we want to preserve and, and protect. A change story isn't about things having to change. They're about the glorious things we're going to preserve. And as, as soon as you, you get the audience to think about that, then change becomes not an evil thing, but it becomes the vehicle for, pre- for preserving what is most, most important to us. So, uh, partly to, re- um, to, to 
understand a, a story like Make America Great Again. Uh, to, to really, to not be affected by it, not be swayed by it, means you have to understand what the story is in terms of its target audience. All stories, effective stories, are target audience specific. And so understanding the audience and then the message to that audience, and then you can say, do I agree with the, the message being delivered to that audience? Am I part of that audience? If it's being delivered to me, what is it that's really being said here? Uh, so um, more basic than reframing than any other technique is understanding what it is that story does and what are the elements of story that let it do what it does? Then we can start to talk about, well, how do you take the story that someone hears and reframe it? Um, and, and since I've gone into reframing so much, I, I need to do it. Do we have sure, time for a quick course. example? This is going to be the assessor of a major Euro, Western Euro, American city, uh, which is in Arizona, but I won't name the actual city. Um, uh, he is an elected position. What does the assessor do? He assigns the value of property for taxation purposes. So, uh, And he got elected. It was an elected position in the state of Arizona, and he was talking about how he was going to reform the, off the office of the assessor and make it more uh, user-friendly and, and make it more accessible and blah, 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 and now he's up for re-election. He hadn't done anything. Uh, but just before he was started to run for re-election, he'd gotten a large grant from this from the state of Arizona and said, I'm going to completely revamp the computer system in, in the office and integrate it. And, and uh, instead of having cars drive up and down the street and every four or five years stop and from the street, take a picture of a building and 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 use that as the basic for, for, for adjusting its assessment. I have a fleet of planes that will fly over every property in this county, the county thing, and, and take pictures, for aerial pictures, accurate to, a, to like an eighth of an inch, and, and, and we'll use those to, to, to adjust it. And anyone who challenges an assessment, which at the time was taking two or three years to adjudicate, he said, I, I have a fleet of, I'm going to have a fleet of drones. Within one hour of you filing an assessment, uh, a complaint, I'll have a drone flying over that property that, that can take photographs of every structure, every development on that property, accurate to within a sixteenth of an inch. We'll have it back and within another hour after that, we'll process and deliver the adjudication on it. Um, and he thought, everyone's going to love this. Everyone's going to love this, that I'm going to get reelected. And so he started to roll out his talks and talk about all this new technology he was going to do. And his numbers tanked and he started to get death threats. This is in Western, you know, Arizona, the, the Old West. So death, you, you, if someone says they're going to shoot you in the Old West, you take it very seriously. Uh, and, and he started to get booed. And that's when he came to me and he said, I don't get it. This is what four years, you know, when I ran the first time, this is what they said they wanted. And I said, well, let's look at the story that they're hearing and then see if we can re-adjust the story. I mean, it took, I was pretty sure I knew exactly what was going on, but you know, I told him that it would take a lot of study and so it's gonna be a huge big budget <laughs> that we'd have to fork over to, to do this study. So I went and interviewed a few people in his target audiences and said to get the story that, so he was trying to tell the story about himself 
and doing his job. The story that they heard wasn't about him. They didn't care about him. They cared about property owners. Why? That's what they are. And what they heard him saying is they were going to up their taxes because he was he wasn't going to lower property values. He was going to it was going to increase. Now he he doesn't set the tax rate. I mean he doesn't set the tax burden. County does, and and then he just disperses it equitably across all property values according to their individual relative value. And so what they heard him saying was, I, I'm going to use all this technology to, in, to catch cheaters, people who have tried to develop anything on their property without filing uh, for permits and paying fees, and, and I'm, I'm going to send spy planes and spy uh, drones to spy on your property. And, and, spy plane. and so they started to say, yeah, if we see one of those planes uh, or those drones are our, are in our neighborhood, we're going <laughs> to shoot it down. Uh, and I said, it's, 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 it's about the story. You want to tell the story of this technology so that it makes sense to those people? I said, you're not going to change the main character. They're going to hear the story about themselves. So change the goal. And I said, the, reframe the goal. The goal of the character, you, you, your goal was to do your job better. Well, they don't care about that. They care about themselves and paying less tax. So change the goal of the main character that you talk about. And you want to say, you don't want to pay someone else's taxes, do you? If someone cheats and develops something on their property and doesn't get to file the permits and doesn't register with the assessor's office, part of their share of the taxes in future years will be, share, will be paid by somebody else who doesn't cheat, who pays. So I said, start every, every speech from that moment on with, you don't want to pay someone else's taxes, do you? I know I don't. And everyone agreed with him. And then he went into the... So he reframed the story so that in story terms, he had originally in the story about himself as the main character. And his lack of technology is the big problem he had to solve. And what his audience heard in their minds, because they wanted to make the story about them, they flipped him from the main character to being the antagonist. He was the bad guy who was going to catch them. And by reframing the story, he took him out of the story, that part of the story and put a cheater in as the antagonist, the bad guy who was going to make honest citizens pay more in the stories. And all of a sudden, as soon as he started that, the death threat started, stopped, uh, and his numbers started to climb and he got himself reelected. It's about taking the story and saying, what story do I want? What, what, is, what is the essential story that my audience has to hear? What are they, what are they likely to hear? And how do, I ref, how do I structure my story so that we take the facts? In this case, it was, we have a new computer system that integrated across the assessor's office. We have planes, we have drones facts. How do we create the story so that it sends the message you want to create? That's the, where stories really have had this amazing power. They take facts and create context for those facts that creates meaning. And it is the meaning that you need to get across. When people misuse story, it's because they try to force a meaning on it that 
uh, ultimately is counter uh, isn't beneficial for the target audience or is is unfairly beneficial for the person yeah, that's, that's doing propaganda that's like the definition of propaganda and that and that that's propaganda so in order to counter propaganda you need to have a body of people who understand story structure so they can recognize it for what it is and recognize how to reframe it to make it make sense. So so how do we do that either in the case of like, let's make America great again so that I can get through my relatives and my mother-in-law, or for example, let's take the, the even more important example perhaps with global warming. You know, in Canada here in, in the West, we have mm. the province of Alberta, which produces the dirtiest oil in the world. Right. And so every right. time, whether the prime minister or I go somewhere to speak there uh, as a keynote speaker and I say something about climate change and I say something about moving to alternative energy sources, whatever I may say, people hear, this guy wants me to be unemployed. This guy wants me to be... Yep out of business. This guy wants me to be on social security or, you know, unemployment benefits and, and stuff like that. This guy wants to ruin me, basically. That's what these people hear. How do we reframe that in their mind? Right. Okay. And the question is, um, climate change is, that's not the question. The question is, what is it that your target audience Jobs. values? more deeply than anything. Jobs is one. There are family-related things. There's having a, 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 a safe and secure world for their children and grandchildren. There are a number of values. There's a number of attitudes that they that, hold, that, that those people hold. I mean, the jobs one, climate change creates jobs. That's the, the most of the research that's been done, and and the, there is a fair amount of it says that climate change opens up technologies that create jobs. That for every job that gets closed down, there there are one or two that open up. It, so that what those people are saying, if if they're really saying, oh, I, I um, you know, you're trying to take my job away from me, yeah, yes, they're trying to take that job away from you. Um, Financial insecure. What they're t talking about is financial insecurity, loss of prestige, loss of status. Because they're seeing, loss they're of seeing that they have a job that makes them two hundred thousand dollars right now, being a roughneck dollars on an oil rig right. in the middle of nowhere. Right? You can't make two hundred thousand yep. dollars like that easy. And then nope. someone says, "Well, you're going to no, get another job but, in alternative energy. Where? Like, I have a good job right now. I don't and, want another yeah. job. I want to keep this one." Right. Exactly. Uh, and to a certain extent, as is with the taxes, you're, um, you're not going to have people suddenly say, oh, hooray, yes, close down my, close down our, my, oil, my, my oil well, close down, close down this refinery. Um, but the question is to find values that are deeper. Value, it's, it, that's the change story. You know, a company we 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 need to get off of, we need to get off of oil, um, as a as an energy as an energy source. Okay, well, why do we have to get off of oil? 
to preserve Why do we have to get the off future of, of my children so that my children and, you know, I don't have children, but I'm looking at it from a Calgarian uh, cattle rancher right. who's had a, a, a ranch for seven generations in their family from the early 1800s and who has like, you know, 8,000 heads of cattle and in the meantime supplements his farming with like a couple of oil rigs uh, on his property. And so he derives his income from there. And so I guess the reframing would be like, you want to protect this landscape and this land for your future uh, grandchildren so that they can enjoy this land like you did. And to do that, we have to change this, which is to say, shift away from oil, uh, maybe consider, you know, different kind of ranching rather than cattle. (laughs) It's to make, it's to make, uh, to make the future vision of the alternatives, both real and personal. What, what does it look like when, you know, uh, tropical diseases suddenly uh, arrive in Canada that have never been in Canada before? Uh, what is it, what does it look like when food supplies are, are, are shifting and, uh, and, and suddenly food is insecure uh, and price of food quadruples uh, or goes up tenfold? What, what is it? Um, it's to, it's to look at, it's to make people see at the root values that they hold that in order to preserve those root values, something else is going to change. And if we change this something else, it's going to preserve what's most important to me. Will you reach everyone? No. Will that, that roughneck who's getting $200,000 a year on oil wells really buy into it? No, because they're bearing an undue share of the cost because they just happen to be where they are. Um, but you can mollify some of that sense of loss by showing what gets, what else would get lost if we don't change. Um, that is to say, so the effect on their children, the effect on their Many of those family. roughnecks are, for so example, y- from Newfoundland or Nova Scotia from a fishing community. And so Mm -hmm. because the great banks got Uh overfished, uh, they couldn't sustain their living with fish anymore. So now they're forced to go all the way west to work Mm -hmm. on an oil rig and then fly home. So then maybe we do something like your wife and your family and your father's home would be underwater and you would lose the memories. You would lose the, the land where you grew up as a child and your children would never play in the same places that you played and hunt in the same places that you hunted with your dad because of climate change yep. and because of <clears throat> ocean. Because of, and actually looking at the fisheries is a great example. It, it, we, we didn't preserve and, and, and make sustainable those fisheries. So now for the next, you know, I don't know, 40, 50 years, we'd have to lay off of them. I don't know how many years, it's probably not that long before those fisheries could recover to us and, and, and be reproductive again. In the same way, if we don't watch, if we don't preserve the climate in a more general sense, what else are you going to lose? What else have you, do you stand to lose? 
and start to go through the they see the they see the immediate gain dollars in their pockets they don't see the cost that they're paying for for that gain and they don't see the, therefore they can't see the value of preserving those things that would be lost uh, that are of great value to them. That's where story can come in. Is it, you're, it, it's a cost-benefit analysis. That yeah, you're doing I'm starting in story to terms. see in ways in, uh, uh, or what I believe are in ways, and in a way we have to show them that the change that they need to do has lower cost than the value of what they want to preserve. In other words, changing your job on a oil rig as a roughneck may cost you so so much, but not doing that would cost your children infinitely more. You're, they'll never hunt with you the way you hunted with your dad. They'll never go fishing in the Great Banks like you went fishing with your dad when you were their age. They'll never be able to play, you know, in the Bay of Fundy because the water would raise you know, even more so than it's risen now. And the flooding would take off the family cottage and et cetera, et cetera. So we can, okay, I, I think I'm starting to get it a little better. There, so it is, it is a sense of, yeah, looking at more than just that one area in isolation. In this case, you yeah, have to broaden the frame, in other words. Uh, you have to broaden the frame and bring in other values, other beliefs that are more fundamental. What happens to their to your community? What you know? What happens to the uh, what happens to the the country? What the, the the consequences of global warming? Certainly, in terms of human migration and and, and human displacement, will be catastrophic. It's going to make it's very likely to make the, the, the displacement around World War II seem yeah, trivial. Yeah. And and so how much of that will affect their communities, their 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 family. Uh, it, I mean you can go through all of the ways that climate change affects human beings and and virtually none of them are positive. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's a question of then of letting them using story to make those costs seem real and personal and vivid in people's minds. That's what that's right. what stories do. So, Kendall, we've been talking now for a couple of hours, but there's still so many things I want to get through. So I'm going to try and see if we can pick up the pace a little bit. Let's talk a little more about story as a social event, because it's very important, I think, and it kind of uh, mm. may shed light so this uh, this kind of my hidden agenda just like you and 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 uh my previous interviewee pointed out the weakness or the flaws of my definition of story or the insufficiency of it um let me mm -hmm. bring in my my kind of uh setup or context within which i'm kind of situating the book that i'm working on and and i want to bring that by starting to talk about story as a social event. Tell me about people reacting more powerfully as part of an audience versus people people reacting less powerfully to mm. the same story when that story is being told one-on-one. -on -one. 
Why is that the case? I mean, we all have anecdotal evidence based on, you know, a football stadium when you go, you know, at, for the Super Bowl and you're in the sure. stadium, it's completely mm. different. Sure. You know, uh, the same. You've been in the army. I've been in the army. You know, it's one thing to be alone, stuck in the middle of nowhere of a field and like scoping out the situation. It's another thing to be with 30, 50 or 100 or 2000 of your buddies and marching and just like hitting the ground and, and you, you go 10 levels up probably, you know, or at least you feel like you do. It's yeah. like totally different. We definitely are influenced. Our, our interpretation of um, experience is influenced by those around us. It's true. By the way that they are reacting. And so there is partly a comparison going on how how do how am I reacting, and how are they reacting? They being the people around me, are th am I reacting the way they are, and so does their rea reaction reinforce my reaction, or does it contradict my my reaction? I often I can uh, say it this way: there are many situations where. If you don't strongly agree with the people around you, if, for example, uh, continuing on, on our last little our last topic, if you were in the in a crowd of climate deniers, what your reaction would be tend to tend to close down, to back off, and so that their reaction would make you, um, would shut down your, your responses, not amplify them, not build on them. Uh, yes, you are affected by, uh, by the people around you and their reaction to a story, and, and you use it some to adjust your reactions to the story. Do they see something I don't see? Do they anticipate something I don't see? What is it they're anticipating? Let me think for a minute. Oh, wait a minute. I think I get what they're, where they're going with the story. I, um, but at the same time, the, the, um, it's a multi, it can be a multiplicative effect. Amplify your reaction to the story. If you perceive that your reaction to the story matches that of the, matches that of the majority of the crowd around you. It tends to amplify your response. If you perceive otherwise, it, I think, tends to diminish and uh, reduce the emotional component of yeah, your response. Yeah, so for example... So it's a factor, but but it's not only it's not necessarily one one sure, directional. Sure, but for, for example, when we have the presidential elections in the United States, my mother-in-law, not during COVID times, but before that, she would want to go somewhere with my people, even though she's at home and yeah. she loves her family and her kids and, and us and all of that. None of us agree or embrace her politics. So she wants to go somewhere sure. where she has her kind of people, the sure. Republicans, the Americans. Right. Where 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 they where her responses will be amplified or her responses so where rather than exactly. being defensive 
about about her responses. She can feel exuberant and enthusiastic about her natural responses and her natural feelings. Um, and sure, I, that absolutely. The, I mean, the crowd phenomenon. Crowds will do things that individuals will never would wouldn't do in a in a, in, a, in their right. whole so, lifetime. Right. So you have a. What I'm trying to push here, and probably not in, I didn't probably approach it in the best way possible, is that um, you have this kind of a shared story between these separate communities. And, you know, um, just like mm -hmm. some, you know, uh, biologists have observed that grooming is the glue that holds ape society together, for example, how apes groom each other mm -hmm. is what holds their yep. troops and their ape society together. My claim is perhaps and and that story is the glue that holds human society together. And 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 oh, so my whole mm -hmm. uh sort of framework or context uh, of the book that I'm working on it 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 so far it's called rewriting the human story how our story determines our future is based on what, and, and at the time I didn't even know that it was defined like that, but basically I observed the same phenomenon that Jonah Sachs observed uh, in his uh, mm -hmm. book, The Upcoming Story Wars, and he coined the term the, the myth gap, which he, he defined as the space between the realities of our moment in history and the shared stories to which we turn for explanation, meaning, and instruction for action. So... What I observed yep. is that, you know, stories are like our GPS. They're like our framework. They tell us who we are, where we're coming from, where we're going, what's right, what's wrong, whom we should marry, what we should eat, what we should not do, what happens to us when we die, where we go, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to bring our children. All of that is given to us by a story. And yep. it struck me that our stories that have brought us thus far are now falling apart. They're failing because the gap between our observed reality and the capacity of our stories, which are very powerful and have taken us, you know, to, to the 21st century and have allowed us to send stuff to Mars and outside of the solar uh, system, you know, but now they're failing to, to create the framework, framework within which we can even acknowledge, let alone start resolving some major problems that we're facing today as a civilization. And so my response to that has been that unless we reframe the stories, which I, I didn't know that even before I read your book, but that was kind of my own independent conclusion is that unless we come up with new stories that would allow us to look at the same data and observe the same problems that we've observed so far, but would allow us the possibility yeah. to consider new solutions that the current stories don't even allow us to see as potentialities anymore. So unless we come up with new stories, we're kind of not going in a good direction. In the 21st century, maybe either our last century or maybe if not, the, the end of humanity as a species may be the end of us as a civilization at the planetary level. Uh, because if you look at our institutions are falling mm -hmm. apart, our politics are falling apart, you know, uh, there's so many things. Everything around us is, is lacking any sense anymore. Uh, 
Uh, and, and the reason why it lacks sense is because we don't have a good story that would allow us to make sense of what happens now, why it's happening, and what could happen next, and, and instruct us, most importantly, of what to do about it and how, so that we we have a positive end. We, we have an up, we look up rather than down. Right now, the current story that prevails is all one of maybe gloom and doom, you know, environmental collapse, war in Europe for the first time since World War II, the potential of World War III yep. at the nuclear level, mm -hmm higher than it's ever been for the last 70 years, potentially equal, if not higher than the Cuban Missile yeah. Crisis. So, so, right so up there. my conclusion was that we need a new story. That's kind of my thesis of the book and, and what pushed me to go into this whole thing on story. And then, of course, artificial intelligence yeah, is what I've been working on for all these years and what I've been all about, transhumanism, mm. which, by the way, is all derived from the story of humanism, right? So, so transhuman is basically taking another step from above human, the logical continu continuation or the teleological continuation, as Aristotle would say. Uh, so we are humans. We've been using science and technology to get to where we are. And as Stuart Brandt would say, you know, we might as well behave as gods because now we are as powerful as them. And then transhumanism jumps in and says, and tomorrow we're going to have physical immortality and we're going to have almighty, omnipotent, ever-present, all-knowing artificial intelligence. And we're even going to merge with them. So we're really going to become gods and we're going to de uh, design our own selves for immortality and all powerfulness and all knowledge and eternal life. And, you know, we'll live longer than the sun and we'll survive and you know, populate the universe. All of those ideas, the singularity and Ray Kurzweil, all of that. So what do you make mm -hmm. of, of kind of my struggle to make sense of, of, of this predicament that humanity is making with, uh, is dealing with right now and, and my kind of proposal to solve it by coming up or as I say, rewriting the human story, because the current human story has brought us thus far, but is no longer serving us. Clearly, uh, yeah, I agree that we're shifting the kinds of stories. Uh, certainly, now this is in the West. I don't know that this is global. I don't know that this is true everywhere. But the trend is to go away from um, collective stories into more smaller tribal stories that are more microscopic and less collective. So as that, but this isn't the first time in the history of the world that that's been true. Uh, there are, and there are even bigger shifts in the in the collective, certainly the Western story over time, uh, rationalism when it came in and replaced faith-based beliefs, that was a huge shift in the way people looked at well, themselves. Well, you can say the that the human society. story for thousands of years was religion, 
And then during the Enlightenment and you know, the uh, Industrial Revolution, yeah. that story of religion as the guiding story of humanity was replaced by the story of rationality, right. science, and uh, yeah. progress. Yep. And I think I've noticed uh, over the last decade that there is a huge shift, certainly... It started before that, but there's been a huge shift away from rationalism back toward faith-based, but not necessarily religious-based faith-based story belief, so that you can have two separate groups of facts. Because I take these, I, I you know, I take these facts to uh, as part of my belief system, and. Why do I believe it? Because the person I believe said it. Um, so that rational, empirical evidence and and logic are less important because they are becoming less and less and less the basis for for making our decisions and and creating our stories. So. I I don't like that train. I think it's a, I think it's counterproductive. I don't think it's I don't think it helps anybody, but it um, it certainly is the 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 current direction and trend in the world's story. Um, and if you know how to change it, I think that's a great thing. And I think that's something that we that that we need. I can certainly observe what's going on. And make that observe the that the stories that we have used certainly for the past seventy eighty years aren't um, having the same impact and the same effect that they have always had. I believe that the underlying values, principles, attitudes are still there that can be reformed into a new story. It's not that those sure, have radically yeah. changed. I but I suspect that that the new stories have to account for new stresses and and new threats. Stories you know, and why did why did Romans and and Greeks create gods because they there are aspects of the world they couldn't understand so they created gods to be able to explain them so that they could live so they could live come more comfortable lives so we had a, a god created thunder why because eh, gods do that and so now I understand thunder so now I don't have to worry about why is there thunder and lightning and why are there floods and why are there droughts gods create those well and th those stories then help people live better lives. Stories are supposed to help us live better lives. What we need is a new is, is some new stories that play off of those same need, those same very basic levels of needs and values and wants and help us live better lives in, at this time in this the main in this function I'm in the world. looking for or effect is cooperation because uh, we've gotten to the point where, uh, cooperation seems to be, uh, you know, diminishing at the global level and threatened physically in many cases, um, like in Europe now with the war in Ukraine. And um, sure, what I'm trying to to come up is with a narrative 
that would motivate not only to restore the previous levels of cooperation, but to go to a new level. Because right now, the kinds of problems that we're facing, whether climate change, whether nuclear weapons, whether artificial intelligence, whether genetic manipulation, whether ocean acidification, whether species extinction, those are all problems that cannot be solved individually, but we need collective cooperative action to solve them. And the only way you can accomplish right. that is within a framework of a story. So, 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 so yep. I'm looking for that story that would motivate and bring people together here's, and create that. Here's the, here's the, um, possibly the antithesis. The way to find that story is to look at the antithesis story, which is, gee, we have too many people. People are the threat. So it's not, I don't, cooperation. No. What I need to do is isolate myself from the fact that there are now too sure. many people on the planet. And that's the... So if you can, that undercurrent is, under, is, I think, the underpinning for tribalism. There's us and there's them. And them is a threat because there are too many of them. They're trying to take over. The, wherever we live, they'll move in, they'll, they'll overpopulate, they'll, they'll run us out. Uh, and I think the seeds for the story you're looking for might lie in understanding how to counter that the seeds of that that narrative that story that says people are a threat because they're they're just too many of them now and then they they're all over and they you know they'll they'll overrun me and they'll overrun my my people if we let them find out how figure out how to counter that thought and you'll have the seeds mm -hmm. for the story that you're looking that, for. That's great. So that's that's indeed the, the survivalist or the, the individualist uh, Malthusian argument made modern. Now we have all these communities of people, you know, who you have to have three months supply of food. You have to have your ammunition, your, you know, AR-15. And just like in case, you know, the zombie apocalypse comes, you know, I have all the food and I have all the ammo I need to protect myself. And... And I know how to survive in in the in the mm -hmm. in the forest or this and that, so yeah, that, that that that's a good point. But then, so I'll think about that. But but my concern is with with one of the legitimate criticisms that I got, is that in a way what I'm trying to do and I, what I've been doing because I've been running a lot of anecdotal tests. I wrote a draft proposal that uh, I ran during a, an art exhibit in Switzerland in Basel with a couple of hundred people. Uh, I did a couple of readings here in Toronto and another couple of places. And uh, some people, may, most people loved it, but I got two places where it was lacking. The first one is like, um, people love the fact that I'm giving like the history of everything through story. In other words, story is in the, in the embedded in everything. It's like the story of everything as story. Like I make story the fundamental mm -hmm. element of analysis at my book. And the first criticism is this. Is story like a universal hammer? And therefore, everywhere you look around in the world, all you see is like nails. <laughs> and my response to that was like, well, that's legit. But here's the way I see it. It's like math. To me, story is like math. Math has limitations. Math has similar, uh, serious, uh, uh, you know, we, we have the Godel's the theorem, right? We, we have 
certain things that you cannot do with math and certain limitations. But yet math is one of the most powerful scientific tools we have. So my argument is the same about story. Story has limitations. And one of the major ones, perhaps, is the fact that it pertains to the human species most than anyone, any other species, perhaps, that we know of, at least. See, I would say that's not necessarily true. That's we apply it sure, to human beings. It's not that that's not a characteristic of story. That's a characteristic okay, of human fit. beings. I would also say that story and math are very similar. Uh, and uh, a lot of what I've been doing the last few years is is being floored by the the number of ways in which story is mathematical, and math can describe story in, in the same way that, in many ways, story is what makes sense of and describes what math does. So they are both ways of viewing the world, viewing, and uh, in that sense, my my goodness, they're incredibly powerful tools because they, they describe the world in ways that resonate yeah, within the human brain. Yeah, but what particularly struck now, me was that it was Brian Boyd who, who was the source of that criticism, that maybe I'm over, hmm. like that I'm seeing story as a hammer in the world full of nails. And I was like, wow, I didn't expect that from him. So if he tells me that I'm over-interpreting the power of story, then I'm very careful. Like, am I? Are we? Um, but see, his criticism is a All story. All criticisms are a story. <laughs> it's in story form. And so it, it, it almost is self-defeating. His criticism is self-defeating in that in order to criticize, he had, he had to use story in order to criticize you and your yeah, because we story. have to have the story of the hammer and the story of the nails before, sure. The story of the nails, and 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 then the story that you know, it's not just that a hammer looks for a nail. A hammer yeah. looks only for nails, and a hammer assumes that yeah. that the world is made up of nails. Um, that that's a, that's all story. And the other criticism that I got was. So I finished my, my first test draft with, with the idea, you know, basically be the author of your own story. We need a diversity, a mosaic of stories that, that, that mutually, peacefully coexist and cohabitate together. And then people were like, okay, great, but give me the story. I was like, but the whole point is like, be the author of your story. So if I give you the story, you, you, it's not your story. It's my story. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Give me the story. <laughs> yeah. And I, I yeah, I agree. And, and uh, um, it's, I don't think that uh, that's a, if people say that, I think that's, that's a positive. That's a good thing. Because what that says is they're 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 looking for that framework that lets their own individual stories suddenly f fall into some context yeah. and make sense. Um, and exactly, that was my conclusion. It's so I I think that if anything is encouragement for you to continue to work on. Yeah. How do we form that story? That that becomes maybe 
the way the way to create that story is to try to do it collectively. I mean, which is where you want to go with the story is that the art story has to be it's a collective process. Forming that story is a collective process. It's not my it's not my story. Exactly. It's not your story. Exactly it's our right. story. Yeah. Uh, because the first part of my book is called story, which is where your book comes to be very helpful because we're looking at the definition of story. We define what story is, how it works and go through all the science. The second part of the book is called our story, which basically talks about the story of humanity and I identify four parts of it. You know, the last part uh, is the becoming, uh, uh, the fourth part is like the becoming God's story, which trans the transhumanist narrative story has brought us to. Um, and now the third part of the book is rewriting, the actual rewriting the new story. And that's where I need to give the new story, that new framework. And that's, so I got the first two parts. The third part is where I'm really struggling with and, and, and trying to, to figure out what's the framework that would create. And it, and it, it may be that, yeah, that it's not the story you want to create. It's the framework by which people gather together to create the story. And if you correct, provide the framework, then every, then then the story itself, which isn't a static thing, the, the, the story that you're talking about is an ongoing, evolving, living, breathing entity that will that is that is always evolving and, and refreshing itself. Uh, and it, it may be the most powerful thing is the tools and the techniques to evolve that story in a continuously productive, beneficial way. Because periodically, the, the, the story of humanity, our collective story, is taking the, these, these quick left, left turns in, into, into, into conflict, into war, into, into genocide, into all sorts of places where we didn't, where no one really, no one really wanted it to go. And the question is, well, how do you, how do you keep evolving the story and keep it going in a more productive way to avoid those catastrophes that seem to come up very periodically? And rather than the story itself, it's the tools and the techniques for evolving, controlling, um, letting the story grow and continue that may be the most mm -hmm. powerful thing you can yeah. create. It has to be a framework which allows the mutual, peaceful coexistence of mutually exclusive stories. A place where Republicans and Democrats, yep. you know, Russians Very and Ukrainians, good. Jews and Arabs can kind of peacefully coexist. Like, you know, like the World Cup in a way. Like, you know, we accept the story of what the World Cup is, in, in soccer and you know we may yep. not accept the result that you know when when Germany wins Brazil is not happy about it but they recognize the legitimacy of the outcome because they recognize the story the, about the rules the and uh, most importantly the yep. conflict resolution mechanism embedded in the story through the referee you know instead of going on the pitch with like you know AK-47s or tanks you know, we cheer with our flags and maybe we'll right. swear against the referee, but we'll accept or, his judgment ultimately. Or, or sneaking on three extra players to... Uh, you're right, we, we accept 
and, and it is those rules that make the that that make the game acceptable. And it's maybe finding those rules that we all need to agree on. So Kenda, we've been talking here for a very long time, two and a half hours. I know that you have to run. So uh, can you please quickly tell us what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? Being a confirmed Luddite as I am, I, I do have a website. Uh, and I I'm, I never go there and, and I don't follow it. But KendallHaven.com is the best place to find out about me. Probably the best place is uh, in, you know... Um, out on the out on the website, out on the line, um, where what other people have posted because they do a much and better I would job say, of posting read the than books. I do. Story proof, fantastic book, absolutely must read. And story now, final question, Kendall. We've covered a wide variety of topics today. What's the best message or story that you want to send us away with? We are. We are story animals. Story is how we make sense of the world. Um, that's not a bad thing. That's a very good thing. But it requires that every human being, as part of being a human being, become aware of what story is and how story works. The more you're aware of story, the more it's a powerful constructive tool and the less it's a destructive tool in the world. Um, so that, and, and we can now, we, we can, that's not theoretical anymore. It's not hyperbole. Story is woven into our DNA. We are story. That's now science. That's, that's now pretty much accepted fact. So the question is only for all of us to, as responsible human beings, to embrace it and use story in a productive way. And you know, I opened way. up our conversation today with a quote about stories being like books of famous chess games, uh, which reminds me to what historian mm -hmm. and sci-fi author Ada Palmer said on my show once about science fiction, because she said, science fiction fights our ethical battles before we have to fight them. I think that's what good stories allow yep. us to do that's too. What's Absolutely. Kendall Haven, thank you so absolutely much for being with us today. My pleasure. My absolute pleasure. And I look forward to our next conversation. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 